0: Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. Alan, we continue our inductive dive into the scriptures, returning to the Gospels, and a look at the book of Mark. There is a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to cover it over the course of two podcasts. The first podcast will be the first half of the book, and the second podcast will be the second. This will all make more sense in just a minute. Kip,
1: that might be a really good idea and a way to go about it. It's a marvelous book, and uh, we don't want to we don't want to miss anything.
0: We've already explored the book of John in an earlier podcast. So, what's notable about Mark that would prompt us to study it?
1: It's kind of an interesting question, Kip, because, you know, obviously Mark is part of what we call the synoptic Gospels, the the, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and, and they're called the synoptics because they basically hold things in common. Indeed, one copies from the other. they They lean upon each other in terms of telling the story with their own unique perspectives, of course. But the interesting thing about Mark is that we tend to believe that it is the earliest of the three synoptics. And that it is largely borrowed from by Matthew and indeed Luke uh, to some extent as well. But, you know, Mark holds in common material with Matthew and John. The preparation for Christ's ministry, for example, the the story of John the baptizer, the temptations are common to all three of those. The Galilean ministry where his popularity is growing and the preparation for his death, the way he announced his death to the disciples, common in all three of those synoptic gospels. And then the final phase of his ministry in the Galilee and Perea, Jerusalem. And of course, his final passion and resurrection. One-third of Matthew is given to the passion of Christ. And one-third of Mark is given to the passion of Christ. One-fifth of the Gospel of Luke is given to the passion of Christ. But these things, they, they have in common. And as a result, what we see is that what we, we basically determine and call them the synoptics because of this common material that is valid for all of them now the interesting thing of course about the synoptics is it makes it very clear what the gospel is right that essentially what we want to say is that that it is the chorus of the synoptics that declares the gospel that god in the fullness of time sent jesus the divine messiah who ministered in the galilee and in judea was crucified dead buried and raised and that you see is, is the essence of the gospel and each, of course, of the synoptics have their own particular perspective, and Mark is, um, is no exception. It's interesting, Mark is, raises the question of the identity of Jesus. He is writing to the Romans as opposed to the Gentiles or the Greeks to whom Luke is writing or to the Jews whom Matthew is writing. Mark is very fast-moving. You'll notice the repetition of the word immediately. Hmm. You know, it, it reports Jesus did something, and then immediately he goes off and does something else, and then immediately he's he's doing something again. Hmm. Mark was the scribe of Peter, so Peter's influence would be paramount in this gospel also. The other things you, you, we want to notice about Mark, which makes it fascinating, I believe, is that it's the start of the gospel is missing,
0: oh.
1: and the ending of the gospel is missing, which is really kind of very special because... You'll notice, for example, that Mark does not have any birth narratives. Matthew tells the story of the wise men. Yeah. Luke tells the story of the shepherds. But Mark is silent. There is no birth narrative. And also there there are no post-resurrection appearances. Mark actually ends in chapter 16, verse 8. And it ends with a preposition. For. So the the sentence obviously has been interrupted midway. So what we tend to think um, is that the scroll on which the gospel was written became book form earlier than most scholars have imagined, and that in the course of the use of this particular gospel, because it was the first gospel and the original gospel, that the beginning and the end, the covers, if you will, were, uh, were lost. Mm. So we have the, the guts of the, of, the, of the book. And so it begins abruptly and it ends abruptly and chapter 1 verse 1 is fascinating because uh, if you look at it there's no verb in that in that verse hmm. because it's essentially a title the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ and mark is concerned primarily with with the question who is jesus he's writing to the romans and he's wanting his roman hearers to understand who jesus is so the identity of jesus is paramount in mark's gospel he is going to try to convince the reader by the end of the book that Jesus really is the son of God. And in the confused age in which we live, if you were to go out into the streets and ask who is Jesus, you'll get all kinds of answers. But Mark is very definitive in how he deals with this. It is one of the most marvelous books, really. I just, I love this gospel. I love this book. It is I love Mark. Uh, there was a time when, maybe we'll talk about it later on in the podcast, there was a time when I was ready to throw this book out the window, but, <laughs> um, because there was one frustrating part of it that was difficult for me. But I've come to love and, and appreciate Mark in a way that um, I, I just, I can't get enough of this incredible gospel. Mm. So he, he asks the question and then answers, who is Jesus Christ?
0: Mm. Well, that's exciting, Um, and a a nice tease into uh, the thing that made you want to throw it out the window. We'll have to uh, tackle that a little bit later. Yeah, yeah, we will. So how does Mark address the question of who is Jesus? Well, it's
1: interesting. It's what, what scholars have come to call the messianic secret. I don't know if you will notice in reading through Mark's gospel that repeatedly Jesus seems to tell people not to say who he is. The book begins, for example, by announcing chapter one that someone special is coming, someone who would be recognized by God, recognized by the authorities, recognized by the demonic forces, uh, recognized in his authority over disease. And all the time he says in chapter one and end of chapter three, he says, don't be telling anybody, Hmm. you know, when the demonic forces come, you know, don't be telling anybody when he heals people, don't be telling anybody. And then you have in chapter three, the accusation that, you know, who is this person? He's beside himself. He's identified with Beelzebul. So he's accused of being demonic. And then the disciples in chapter 4 ask the question, who is this person that even the winds and the waves obey him? And, and then in chapter 5, you've got the demonic legion, you remember? Yeah. They recognize him. The religious ruler in chapter 5 also recognizes him as rabbi. The people cry out in chapter 6, is not this the carpenter, the, the, the son of Joseph? Uh, Herod thinks that he's John the baptizer come to life again and others mm. think that he's um he's thought to be Elijah or one of the other prophets come back so I mean the whole thing is just as fascinating as it can be because Mark is deliberately planting those seeds in the minds of the reader this yeah. uh, this recognition versus unrecognition, recognition how he he's not recognized by his disciples and then recognized by the people recognized by the Syrophoenician woman And then in chapter 8, recognized by Peter as the Messiah. From there, the book is going to turn, and we'll see that the nature of his person is then expounded, that he's recognized by God, the people. uh, Blind Bartimaeus calls him the son of David. The crowd recognizes him on Palm Sunday. Um, He's called rabbi by a scribe, and so on. Up until his own trial, when he's asked, are you the Christ? Are you the king of the Jews? Um, and culminating in the centurion's statement at the cross this man is the son of God so it's what mm. scholars have come to know is the messianic secret and in that messianic secret you've got the religious leaders the disciples Herod uh, Pilate all asking the question who is this the demons the leper the disciples are being told don't be telling anybody uh, the soldiers not recognizing him the people not recognizing him and then the demons recognizing him, the disciples recognizing him, the religious leaders recognizing him, the soldier at the end recognizing him. So so all of this is wrapped up in the question, you see, who is this Jesus? And the reader cannot avoid the question in reading it. That's, that's one of the amazing things about this particular uh, gospel. So wonderful.
0: Mm. I've always found that very curious. But
1: you, you see that it's deliberate. I mean, Mark is deliberately focusing on those things, planting uh. the question in the mind of the, of the reader. So the reader begins to read the book and thinks, who on earth is this? <laughs> Which is exactly what Mark is trying to do. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, it's brilliant. It's, it's a mark of true brilliance, this book. Just amazing.
0: So, is this an identity book, essentially? A book about the identity of Jesus Christ? Exactly! That's exactly
1: what it is. That is exactly what it is. And, and you know, one would say it's, its inductive structure is made up of two separate parts. And the first part mm. would take us from chapter 1 into chapter 8, verse 30, where the turning point is verses 30 and 31 of chapter 8. So, so up until chapter 8, verse 30, you have the question of his identity. Who is Jesus? And then from verse 31 of chapter 8 to the end of the, the book, chapter 16, you've got the question, what is Jesus? Having come uh-huh. to some kind of conclusion at this pivotal, pivotal point in chapter 8, which is the great confession of Peter, when, when Jesus says, who, who, do, who, who am I? Who do people say that I am? Hmm. And the disciples say, well, well, I mean, some say you're Elijah and some say you're a prophet. And, and, and then he cut it all short and he said, what about you? What about you? What, what do you say? And they were quiet. Hmm. And in the silence, Peter. It's always Peter. Don't you love Peter? <laughs> Peter I do. blurts out, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the son of the living God. And at that point, the book
0: completely turns around. Hmm. Wow. So now that pivot that you talk about in chapter eight, verse 29, that's where you separate the two divisions. Exactly,
1: that's exactly right, yes. And the first, as I say, the first division is an attempt to answer the question, who is Jesus? So it is the question of his identity. And then the the second part of the book, what I would term it, what is Jesus, becomes as a movement away from his identity to his passion. Mm. Because the interesting thing, as we will see, is that when they come to the conclusion of who he is, they're not quite sure what that means. Because there was a messianic expectation, and Jesus didn't fit the expectation. And now the second part of the book deals with that particular
0: passion. And chapter 8, verse 29, uh, re- read that for me again, please.
1: He's sitting with his disciples after an amazing, an amazing story that, oh my goodness, where do we come to it. I mean, it's just an incredible story that precedes <laughs> this, uh, which, which really throws the question into... Uh, amazing light Uh, the blind man who can't see properly and jesus gives him a second touch Mm -hmm. and the disciples who can't see properly and they receive a second touch when peter says you are the christ who do people say that i am and who do you say that i am and peter says i know i know Um, you are the christ yeah that's that's the whole turning point of the entire of the entire book
0: yes oh the second touch that's very interesting yeah because that's always been a big curious moment uh, the second touch like why why not why didn't he fix him in the first touch you know? Exactly. Uh, anyway. exactly anyway
1: yeah and by the way that's the part that, that's why i wanted to throw the book out the window when i was a kid but we'll come to that we'll, we'll come okay, to, okay 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 yeah, we won't get ahead yeah, of ourselves yeah, okay let's, we'll try let's, not to
0: let's talk about then the first half of the gospel. Let's talk about how the content Mark uses actually deals with the question of Jesus's identity.
1: You know you see from the very outset of the book uh, in chapter one after the title. I mean I mentioned already that verse one is a title. So verse two of chapter one actually begins the story and it begins immediately in preparing Christ for his ministry. In the first few verses two to seven uh, you've got John preparing the people for the coming of Christ. And he's baptizing many, which is dealing with sin and repentance. And then in verse 8, John prepares Jesus for the ministry. So he's prepared the people, 2 to 7. Then he prepares Jesus, 8 through 11. From the baptism of many comes the baptism of one. From the dealing with sin to the no mention of sin, because Jesus was not baptized for repentance of sin. And then finally, that marvelous crescendo or climax when the dove comes down so that the Holy Spirit now prepares Jesus for his ministry. Mm. I mean, it is just quite amazing and incredible. And then from there, you have this amazement. I mean, the people are amazed so that after he's prepared and sent into ministry, the reception is that Jesus basically takes the Galilee by storm. People love Mm -hmm. him. They love him. We read, for example, in the remaining part of that chapter, chapter 1, in verse 22, it actually says the people were amazed at his teaching. And in verse 27, the the people were all so amazed. And again, the the following verse, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of the Galilee. So they were amazed at his teaching, uh, which was the reason he came. He came essentially to, to preach. Now, we will discover, as it goes on, that he became waylaid with a, with a healing ministry. And at some point in his ministry, you will see him returning to a preaching ministry. And, and healing becomes less important in what he does. I mean, it's very significant. So the mass healing ends, if you will. He states his purpose, that he came to preach. He came to tell people the good news. I mean, he was the good news. And then he picks his disciples and then you have, because of this uh, spreading fame, people come for healing. And it's not until the end, towards the end of that, of that first chapter, that he realigns his ministry in his sunrise prayer in verses 35 to 39. He basically, I wouldn't say he turns his back on healing, but he, he basically realigns his ministry to a spiritual rather than a physical ministry. Oh. Healing was was the physical aspect of his ministry. The preaching was the spiritual, and and what what we're saying, seeing here at the end of the chapter is the spiritual always has precedence over the physical, hmm. and and the ministry of preaching is by far the greatest ministry. It's a far greater ministry than the ministry of healing, and so basically the chapter then uh, comes to uh, to to a conclusion with the the healing of the leper. But you'll notice that there is no more emphasis on mass healings the way there has been up to this point. Hmm. Um, And then, of course, Jesus breaks the law here. He didn't need to touch that leper, but he decided he was going to do that any which way.
0: So, yeah. On the Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this has always been a challenge for me. What went wrong? uh, Because he goes from immense popularity to being derided. uh, It seems like overnight. And, of course... When you're reading the Bible, overnight could be uh, a fairly lengthy period of time, but it still feels like it happens very quickly.
1: Yeah, it does. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of interesting, you know, it it kind of it, concurrent with the growing popularity is this growing opposition. Mm. So what you have basically is in chapter one, Jesus taking Galilee by storm, his popularity with the people soaring, this, this amazement um, that people have. Uh, I mean, Jesus was amazing. Right. Uh, that, you know, I have often said, you know, that the worst sin I think that we can be guilty of as Christians is to make to make Christ dull. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: he was amazing, amazing. And, and you catch that. You catch that in chapter one. But in chapter two, you have this concurrent opposition, this growing opposition. And the Pharisees start firing questions at him throughout so here in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, through the beginning of chapter 3, in fact. The scribes uh, don't like the fact that he forgives people their sins. The scribes argue in verses 13 to 17 that he, he must be a sinner because he eats with sinners. He associates himself with sinners. Right. The people ask, how come you don't fast? Uh, and the Pharisees are asking, why are you plucking grain on, on Shabbat, on, on Sabbath?" You know, when it's against the law to do that. And what about this healing? You're healing on the Sabbath. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, you're breaking the law. And and the interesting thing is in each case, Jesus responds to the, the opposition. You know, he says, for example, to the accusation of, of being able to forgive sins. He says, hey, you know, the Son of Man is, has authority to forgive sins. And as for eating with sinners, the, those who are well don't need a physician. It's those who are sick. I came to to be the great physician. And as for fasting, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a good thing to fast. But uh, the bridal party doesn't fast when when the bridegroom comes. And he was the bridegroom. And as for plucking the grain on on Sabbath, he was Lord of the Sabbath. And after the healing of the man on Sabbath, there's no more questions.
0: Mm.
1: Interesting the way Mark arranges his material. That's why I love this book so much. You know, he, he puts all the opposition together. He, he puts all the questions together. He, he puts all the, the responses of Jesus together in this one section. And it ends with the fact that after he heals the man and, and makes a statement about healing on the Sabbath, there is silence on the part of his opposition. But Mark then goes on to say that they got together and devised a plot whereby they might put him to death. Hmm. Fascinating.
0: Yeah they're attacking his character.
1: Yes. They yes. he
0: he came, he was growing in popularity, so they attack his character to try and exactly. undercut him. And
1: indeed they do so to, with the extent of they actually accuse him of demon possession. You know, they hmm. say that that he must be possessed by the devil, that he must that, that he is in fact some kind of uh, has some kind of association with with Beelzebub. Uh, to which Jesus responds by speaking of a sin that cannot be forgiven. Now, it's fascinating that he does that following this particular accusation.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit more, this unpardonable sin. That's always been an interesting one to consider. Um, Seems to be a lot of confusion about that. Can you help clarify?
1: Yeah, there is. It's astounding. I've heard so many things, and people who— who think that they've been guilty of the unpardonable sin. And anyone who's ever come to me in the course of the 40-odd years of ministering to people and they've said, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin, I just laugh. I say to them, you know, the very fact that you're worried that you may have committed the unpardonable (laughs) sin demonstrates to me that you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins, Jesus said. And every slander they utter, they can be forgiven. Every slander. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. Let's look at it inductively. It is blasphemy against the Spirit that is the unpardonable sin. So I ask the question, what is blasphemy? What is the Holy Spirit? And what is forgiveness? Because that will give us clue. Because those are the three basic words that he uses here. In defining the unpardonable sin. Blasphemy means that you're going to revile something. The purpose of blasphemy is to revile. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction and salvation to the sinner. Mm -hmm. And forgiveness involves confession and repentance. Now you put those together. Blasphemy against the Spirit is reviling the work of the Spirit's convicting and saving power Hmm. and therefore if you revile the holy spirit's convicting and saving power then you do not confess and repent and if you do not confess and repent you can never be forgiven you can never be forgiven for something you don't ask for forgiveness for right you know
0: so so it's an absolute rejection of the spirit
1: it is a rejection of the spirit yeah And the Spirit's work in your life, bringing life to you, bringing Christ to you, bringing salvation to you. Yeah. Mm. By rejecting it, that is the unpardonable sin. It's as simple as that. It is as simple as that. And it's very clear from the text that that's exactly what it is. Yeah.
0: Mm. Let's jump ahead uh, for a moment. And there's another interesting Challenging, somewhat confusing statement in chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah I think, 6. I think you mean Isaiah, don't you? That's, that's okay. Oh, Isaiah. <laughs> right, right, I forgot who I was talking to. <clears throat> uh, yeah. He quotes Isaiah chapter 6. When he was alone, those who were around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you is given the mystery of God's kingdom, but to those who are outside, all things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest perhaps they should turn again, and their sins should be forgiven them. Now, Now, was Jesus actually telling parables to obscure the message of salvation, and deliberately mislead
1: <laughs> well of course i'm going to say no uh, of course but, I, but
0: I, have, I have good reason
1: why <laughs> you know it's interesting I hope it, so. it's interesting yes. yes i do too um i love the way mark groups things together the amazement of the people grouped together and, and then the opposition of the the scribes and the pharisees and the people in chapter 2 grouped together and now you have the parables of the kingdom also grouped together basically what jesus is doing he is explaining the concept of the kingdom how it is biological you know in 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 nature like a seed it's something that grows it's futuristic there's a harvest associated with it victory is secure and then of course there's the parable of the soils the the sleeping farmer the mustard seed and and then as you point out the purpose of the parables to reveal the truth and, and and yes this is enigmatic i must confess that it would appear that Jesus does seem to be saying to the disciples that these things are are somewhat mysterious. Now, parables, of course, are earthly stories that illustrate heavenly realities. I think that's important to to understand. uh, Because, you know, Jesus, uh, in the verse that you quoted, to you is given the mystery of God's kingdom, but to those who are outside, all things are done in parables. So, in other words, they were to illustrate heavenly and spiritual truths. Uh, but let's look more closely at the verses that you cite, if, if, you, if you will bear with me uh, for these yeah. few moments. By the way, we want to say that all the synoptics tell this story exactly as it is. However, Mark uses the Hebrew sense of Isaiah, Luke also happens to use the Hebrew sense. Now, when I say the Hebrew sense, I mean the actual Hebraic text of Scripture, which I would translate this way. That seeing, they may not perceive, and hearing, they may not understand, lest perhaps they should turn again and their sins should be forgiven them. They're using the Greek word ina, which literally means in order that, in order that they can't understand. So that this would appear to be an emphasis on divine determinism. God is the one who determines who's going to understand and who's not going to understand. So that if I might translate it again, seeing they may not, in order that they might not perceive, and hearing they may, in order that they might not understand. So that it seems the emphasis is upon the Hebrew text itself. So Mark is quoting that. Now, the interesting thing here for me is when you put that beside Matthew's gospel, Matthew doesn't use the Hebraic sense, interestingly. He uses the Greek sense because the Bible that we have, the text that we have, the Old Testament is is Hebraic, is Hebrew. Mm -hmm. But there's a Greek translation which was used by the New Testament writers. So you have here Matthew using the the Greek sense or the Septuagint, what's called the Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew into Greek. So that what you have here, instead of the word ena, in order that, he uses the word hoti, which means because. So basically you would read the thing this way. For this people's heart has grown callous, their ears are dull, they've closed their eyes, or else perhaps they might perceive with their eyes hear with their ears understand with their hearts would turn again and i would heal them in wow. other words what he's saying is their hearts have grown callous their ears dull because they did not want to hear right that they didn't see because they didn't want to perceive with their eyes yeah it's because they didn't want to hear with their with their ears they didn't want to understand with their hearts and turn again and be and be healed so the emphasis is there is not on the divine determinism it's more on human freedom so essentially how we can conclude this it is best to understand both what the greek translation and the hebrew sense appear to be saying mark and luke are using the hebrew sense which emphasizes divine determinism whereas matthew tends to use the greek sense which emphasizes human freedom. So the mm. question then is, well, which one is true? And I would say both are true. Oh. Man is a free agent. He becomes what he does. He's totally responsible. On the other hand, human experience is free in doing what they do, but is not free in becoming. If we continue to do something, then it is God who determines what we become. Mm. So how then are we to understand this rather Enigmatic statement that Jesus makes. To you is given the mystery of God's kingdom, but to those who are outside, I'm trying to illustrate truths in parables. So that seeing, they may see, but not understand, because they don't want to understand, and because if they continue not understanding, God will not let them understand. And hearing, they may hear, and not understand because. They don't want to understand. They don't want to make the effort. And because they don't make the effort, then eventually they lose the power to be able to hear. And so they mm-hmm. don't turn again and receive forgiveness. I, I hope that helps. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. It sounds a little bit like uh, Pharaoh's hardening of his heart. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly true. And that, that sort of leads us back to the whole idea of blaspheme. If someone blasphemes, basically chooses not to see, <laughs> right. chooses not to hear. Right. Huh.
1: You see, that, yeah. that, and that's not, that's not accidental, Kip. You know, your, your observation there is right on. Mark has aligned all these stories in such a way that one will impact the other and how he groups them together. They didn't happen together. I mean, he's not reporting chronologically. He's reporting ideologically, if you will. I mean, in, in ideological groupings. He puts the parables together. He puts the miracles together. He puts the opposition together. He puts the popularity together for purpose, and yes, yeah. so so this, this emerges out of that accusation about him being possessed demonically.
0: Mm. Yeah. The beauty of inductive Bible study.
1: It is. It is indeed. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the miracles which follow the parables. Mark seems to compartmentalize his writings. I think we've talked about that just a little bit.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and again, that's the beauty of Mark's gospel. I think it's just absolutely amazing how he does that. And he does so for a specific purpose. And now we come to this grouping of miracles that take us through chapter five. And what you have here, uh, basically, you've got four miracles. You've got the stilling of the storm, the end of chapter four, and then into chapter five, the story of the demoniac. And then uh, also in 5, continuing, you've got the the lady with the issue of blood. And finally, it builds up to to Jairus' daughter. And each event is reported. And the interesting thing is that that there is something recurring in all of them. And Mark so brilliantly brings it out. Because each situation that that is encountered from the end of chapter 4 through chapter 5 represents situations of hopelessness. There is no hope. I mean, that's the amazing thing. The stilling of the storm, the disciples were beside themselves. They had lost hope that, uh, that they would make yeah. it to the shore. you know? The demoniac lost hope. There was no hope there. The woman who was taken with the issue of blood, I mean, she'd gone to physician after physician after physician, and they hadn't helped her. So she was in a position of, of hopelessness. And even mm-hmm. Jairus's daughter, initially in verse 22 and 23, there is hope at first. But by the time we get to verse 35, death has removed all hope in that situation as well. And the mourners are there already, you know, mourning the fact that the young lassie has died. So you have these Mm -hmm. these recurring situations of hopelessness that Mark weaves together in each of these four incredible miracles. And then the result in each of them is amazing because into each situation Jesus walks. And by the simplest of words, he turns hopelessness into hope. And he does it simply with a word. That's all. <laughs> Amazing. And because of that word, each situation is reversed. The storm becomes calm. The demoniac is in his right mind. The woman with the blood flow is healed. The death situation, the young girl's walking. And you know, the interesting thing here also is that the final miracle, Jairus' daughter, Marcus put it there deliberately last building to a great crescendo. In each case, hopelessness becomes hopeful. And then the worst situation of all, death. And he transforms it into life.
0: Amazing. It is so representative of our continuing existence. You know, this is relevant to people back then and still today. We we try and rely on our own abilities, our own circumstances, our own... Uh, The world, we try and rely on the world, but there is no hope in the world. There is only hope in Jesus, which it would seem that all of these point to Jesus' identity.
1: Precisely. And that's exactly what Mark is doing, of course. You see that as we get into chapter six, you have what I would call pure and pretend religion. Jesus draws implications of what true religion is, what hope is really based upon, Mm. as opposed to fake religion. And there's so much fake religion in the world. And I'm not just talking about other religions. I'm talking even within, dare I say, even within the Christian community.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: And interestingly here, he takes on the religious leaders of his day. And he calls them hypocrites. What you have here is this continuing perception of Christ and what he's standing for. You know, in chapter 6, they're astonished at him, but they're offended by him. Because they think of, oh, well, we, we know this chap. He lived with us. He was a carpenter here. He was an apprentice mm-hmm. to, to Joseph, you know? Yeah. And then you have the recognition by the disciples in verses 7 and following into verse 13. And Jesus sending out his 12 and, and the spreading of his fame and the spreading of his name. And, and then uh, we get to Herod, who he doesn't recognize who Jesus is. He's filled with fear and guilt. And even the disciples you know, they don't fully recognize who he is because they, they don't understand that he has the power to feed 5,000 people. Hmm. And, and interestingly, as as Mark continues the story in verses 45, when Jesus comes walking in the water to them, you remember they were in the storm and then he comes walking in the water and they don't recognize him. In fact, they're terrified by him. They think he's a ghost. And yet towards the end of the chapter, you have this recognition by the people, Jesus is able to do many great works. So yes, you have this dichotomy between those who recognize him and those who don't recognize him. And then, and then Jesus taking on the religious leaders of his day. He 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 basically calls them actors, <laughs> hypocrites, pretenders. In the opening verses of Mark chapter seven, he says, "Well, did Isaiah prophecy of you hypocrites? Has <laughs> written these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain." teaching as doctrines the commandments of man, but but you set aside the commandments of God and hold tightly the traditions of man. He takes on these pretenders, these hypocrites, these religious leaders, because the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had been accusing the disciples of flouting the traditions of the Jews. Hmm. And so Jesus turns to them and, and accuses them of flouting God's law through their traditions. You know, he basically says in verses 14 and following that, it's not things that come in what you eat, for example, the traditions, the, ex, the external, the ceremonial things, the legalisms. And, and he contrasts that with the Syrophoenician woman whose faith is absolute uh, humility itself. Mm. Uh, she becomes the example of, of heart religion. Interesting that Mark is using this story because, because she's a woman of Syrophoenicia. You see, she's disqualified from the Jewish community. Right. She's she's disqualified from the old covenant. But 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 he says that even though she may be disqualified from the old covenant, she receives the benefits of the of the new covenant. And and in this, you see, Jesus represents a transitional figure as a bridge between both covenants. And he's he's announcing basically this new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of, that Isaiah spoke of, that Ezekiel spoke of in the in the Old Testament. And once the temple is destroyed in a d seventy the break is complete,
0: mm.
1: and the new covenant is is no longer a codified covenant it is no longer a series of commandments. it is rather an ethic, a situational ethic, not situational ethics uh, but a, but an ethic that is situational. What would Jesus do in this particular setting what is what is grace here? What is agape love? what is redemptive love
0: but using the Saraphonician woman must have been really scandalous Uh, it seems like jesus is just asking for trouble
1: yeah it was i mean it was it was it was exactly scandalous jesus is a radical figure he didn't need to touch a leper he didn't need to heal the guy on the sabbath and yet he went out of his way it would appear to break the Mishnah law no but what what he was doing you see the important thing what he was doing was he was demonstrating a more authentic way and he was trying to warn the people of his day not to follow what what i have come to call an eros piety now maybe maybe i should explain that maybe a a little more please because uh, if you go on if you continue on into chapter 7 jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them beware of the leaven of the pharisees and herod now what was he saying to them he was basically warning them away from that false religion that he was already attacking earlier in chapter 7 think about for a moment the characteristics of the of the pharisees and think of the characteristics of herod and think of what what you as disciples of mine are experiencing are they in any way similar because if they're any way similar, you've got to be cautious. You've got to be wary of that. Now, this is a message, I believe, for the church today.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, because as I look through chapters 3, 4, 7, and 8, I sat down one day and I just sat down, I just enumerated what I consider to be the characteristics of the Pharisees, what I would call leaven. You know, what, what, leaven is something, of course, that 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 spreads, that 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 transforms, that influences, that that it becomes ubiquitous it 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 is pervasive you know it just it it and if it's bad it poisons everything right and here are the characteristics as i as i went back through these chapters i said okay the the pharisees they 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 showed disobedience they were they were fixated in the way they looked at they felt self-sufficient they failed to understand they lacked perception they were evasive in their theological understanding their hearts were hardened they had ulterior motives they were hypocrites And then I thought, now this is fascinating. What about the leaven of Herod? And I thought, well, I would go back to chapter 3 and chapter 6 and you see Herod there. Also, disobedience, lust, guilt, fear, failure to understand, lacking perception. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. There's some similarities there. The disobedience and the, the failure to understand and the lacking of perception. Ah, that's what Jesus was talking about. And then I had the audacity <laughs> to go and have a look at the disciples, especially in chapters 6 and 8. And, you know, I, it, was, it was for me, it was mind-opening, mind-boggling, because I sat there and I said, I, OK, I'm going to list these things. And, and I started listing them, and I came up with things like they lacked compassion. Mm. Uh, they took a rational approach to problems. In other words, it was kind of like they were fixated. They felt self-sufficient. They, they failed to understand. They, they lacked perception. They lacked remembrance. Their hearts were hardened. And I thought, ouch! Is not this very similar to the Pharisees and the scribes. And so when Jesus says to his beloved disciples, I want you to be careful. And all of a sudden I was seeing these similarities and I knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. He was referring to hypocrisy to unbelief, to lack of understanding, lack of compassion, to self-centeredness, to, to failure to recognize who Jesus really is. And in a way, the disciples and the Pharisees were both trying to grasp the kingdom for themselves. One by opposition to Christ, Pharisees and Herod, and the other by allegiance to Christ, the disciples. And you know, all of a sudden I thought... Oh, I know exactly what Jesus was saying to his beloved and, and to us today. Beware. Beware that you don't get caught up in this leaven. What are your motives? And where are you in your faith walk? And is it in any way similar to those who oppose me?
0: Mm. That's powerful.
1: Yeah. And yeah, Jesus is just, I've said this already, he's amazing.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Let me get to the story which we touched on earlier, the teaser. What about the story of the blind man? What does he have to do with this Eros piety that you mentioned?
1: This is so incredibly clever. Mark juxtaposes this story with others to demonstrate an amazing truth that I did not understand for a long time. For years, in fact. If I might just digress a moment, when I was involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship as a student at Queen's University in Belfast in Ireland, I was blessed and fortunate to be the, uh, the president of the InterVarsity chapter. And so I was, I was a known quantity on the university campus and, and on one occasion this young atheistic law student came to me and he said, I believe you're a, a follower of Christ and I said, I am." And he said, well, why would you want to follow a person who couldn't get a miracle right the first time? Hmm. And I said, what are you talking about? I'd never, I'd never, you know, I was a young Christian. I, I, I just, I didn't know. And I, I, I never really thought about this. I don't know if I even heard about this. And he said, he quoted this from Mark. I couldn't answer him. Mm-hmm. And he went away, you know, kind of feeling very proud. There was another, another Christian hits the dust kind of thing, you know. He very proud. But I would give my, my eye tooth to speak with that that you not a young lawyer, lost law student anymore but <laughs> but I would give my tooth to go back and say to him let me tell you how this this works but at the time I didn't know I asked my my youth workers my minister nobody had an answer for me and I looked at Matthew um, and I looked at Luke I looked at John nobody else tells this story just Mark mm. and boy I did not like Mark because he was showing my savior that my new savior in a bad light you couldn't get Miracle right the first time. And I just thought, there's something is terrible here. I mean, and, I, mean I, I almost cursed Mark and wanted to throw the book out the window. I, you know, I wanted to prefer Matthew. Matthew did, doesn't tell this story. Luke does not tell this story. They all omit it. So why, why couldn't Mark omit it? That was my question, you see. Mm-hmm. But you see, what you have here is an amazing juxtaposition that is absolutely brilliant on the part of Mark. And it wasn't until I was studying this chapter in a class at seminary many, many years later under the tutelage of one of the greatest inductive Bible study experts in the world, a a man by the name of Dr. Robert Trana. And I remember sitting there and as he began to unfold this and, and help us work our way through it, oh my goodness, all of a sudden I realized the brilliance of what Mark was. You see, what you have here is this, this eros, this, this problem of leaven, the eros piety, essentially means that we serve Christ for our own selfish ends. Uh, you know, that we tithe in order that God will bless us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we give in order that we receive. You know, other preachers have referred to it as the gospel of wealth or or prosperity gospel or or the power of positive thinking the problem with these heresies in the church and they are myriad and ubiquitous is that they're trying to grasp the kingdom for themselves they want to obtain a reward Mm -hmm. and jesus isn't offering a reward jesus is offering a cross you know now that becomes amazingly focused in chapter eight if anyone would deny himself, he must take up his cross. Yeah. There's no reward there. You know? So I don't tithe in order that I'm going to get more money. As some preachers God I was gonna say God bless them, and I don't want God to bless them. I mean, that's heretical. <laughs> or this prosperity gospel, it's from the pit. Or this power of positive thinking business. You know, that's not what Christianity is. It's the very opposite so here mark brings in a story of a blind man he lacks perception Ah, wow we've already noticed that the disciples lacked perception yeah we've already noticed that the the pharisees lacked perception and the blind man receives a second touch and what happens he recognizes who jesus is now that's important because because what you have is this story is is juxtaposed between another story, the story of the disciples. In chapter seven, they've just witnessed the miracle of the feeding of the five thousand. Amazing. And now they're in the boat, out in the sea, and what do they start talking about? Andrew, did you remember to bring the bread? No, I thought John was going to bring the bread. <laughs> um No, it wasn't my responsibility to bring the bread. Peter didn't tell me that I should bring the bread. And I thought, You're, aren't, aren't you the person of bread? And so they got into this big argument. Now they just they just witnessed the feeding of the 5,000 and they're arguing about <laughs> bread. Now Mark does this so incredibly wonderfully. And Jesus, when he hears the argument, he says to them, listen, he says, do you have eyes and you don't see? You have ears, but you don't hear. Now the ears is a reference to the deaf mute in chapter 7. And the eyes is a reference to the story that he's now going to tell, that Mark is going to inject into this narrative. Because here's a blind man. He comes for healing. Jesus touches him. says, what do you see? Oh, I see people, but they look like trees. Now, interesting. He, he had eyes, but he couldn't see properly.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly
1: mm-hmm. what Jesus said to the disciples. Having eyes, do you not see? Mark then tells a story of how Jesus touched the man a second time. And he was able to see clearly. And immediately after that story, Jesus says to the disciples, Who do people say that I am? Oh, they say this, that, and the other. What about you? Peter says, You're the Christ. He sees clearly. Mm -hmm. So Peter, just the way the blind man needed a second touch to see clearly... Peter needed the second touch so that he could recognize who Jesus was. And I would go further and say, do not we all stand in need of a second touch?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've reached the end of the first half of this book. So the end of this first podcast. Uh, Be sure to join us for part two so you don't miss out on the second half which is equally wonderful and fascinating
1: yeah i'm looking forward to the second half because you know we move essentially from the identity of christ to the passion of christ we move from the question of who is jesus to what is jesus and that's really really vitally important in understanding and mark does an amazing job having brought us to this point of saying this is who jesus is he's the messiah he's the son of god now then what does that mean we look to the future
0: alan thank you another thought-provoking look at scripture and a fascinating exploration of all that god illuminates for us through his word if you want to go deeper still into the study of the book of mark alan has done a wonderful six-part video series that you can find on the wordisout.com under the what we do heading you'll find video lessons and inside there you'll find these six wonderful videos all right. Please be sure to come to us with your thoughts, your comments, your questions, either on our Facebook page or directly via email at podcast at the word dot com. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.